Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 21 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on March 1st, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode of XCP, we'll be discussing the postponement of GDC 2020, examine the deluge of Xbox Series X news, and chat some listener mail. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse pertaining to the Xbox ecosystem. Before we begin this week, I must say a big thank you to The Shop Podcast for having me on. A wonderful group of gamers over there. They podcast weekly, they chat Xbox, they chat gaming. An incredible community they have as well, which was very welcoming. And if you are here from that community, I welcome you to XEP, a place I call home and enjoy talking about games each week. And this week, no exception to that, a deluge of Xbox Series X announcements coming forth, brought to us by Phil Spencer in a blog post detailing the differences between the Xbox Series X and the Xbox One family of devices. Now, some of these things were highly technical and far beyond my knowledge breadth, and I would point you instead towards somebody like Digital Foundry or ACG to give you a more technical breakdown of what makes these things so special. But in layman's terms, I can examine some of these things and talk about what they mean to me as a gamer. On the least important end of the news included in this was 120 frames per second support on the Xbox Series X. Now, 120 frames per second, that's all well and good. This is the ability to include that for developers to choose to to utilize this feature. It is not a requirement. Some people speculating that this was going to be a requirement put forth by Microsoft into their games. Not at all true, nor is it necessary. There are plenty of incredible games that run at 30 frames per second that we have an absolute blast with. But the ability of the feature set to include uh, access to 120 frames per second and the choice for developers to access it at some point throughout the Xbox Series X lifecycle is indeed encouraging, but on the very low end of importance for me, given that graphics and frames per second, those types of things, don't necessarily make the game experience. They can indeed break the game experience, but they don't make it, and so I was excited to see it, but not necessarily uh, overwrought with joy at that particular feature. Again, on the lower end of importance for me as a gamer was their HDMI 2.1 innovations. They have uh, low latency modes and variable refresh rates, which will optimize the gaming experience depending upon what type of monitor or TV you're using. Again, a quality of life improvement, not something that is overly necessary for me to enjoy video games, but that will certainly add up in a small way towards a grandiose and incredible experience uh, moving forward. They also had things like dynamic latency input, which just improves the speed from your controller to your screen uh, and in general makes the game feel better like you're having more access with it I like that I, I think it's a, an encouraging side I wonder very much how these types of features will factor into something like xCloud moving forward and all that's well and good Excited to see it, the variable rate shading as well. The ability of the system to prioritize certain characters or effects, environmental objects, versus having to code each and every single pixel per perfect on the screen. These are all wonderful things. But most of us don't quite know or understand what they are. To the layman's terms, uh, we don't truly, truly 
need to understand that to know that we're getting a better visual experience. Fantastic, love it. We're getting hardware accelerated ray tracing, so the lighting looks better, great. But let's talk about the features that make me so excited uh, as a gamer and somebody who just enjoys playing video games. The first is something called Quick Resume. The idea that multiple games will be able to be to exist in a suspended state and be accessed almost instantly. Uh, more recently, I've been playing a lot of Darksiders Genesis. My friends jump on, they say, hey, we want to play Battlefront 2, we want to play Sea of Thieves, we want to play Call of Duty. Suspend Darksiders, jump into another game. The idea that the Series X will be able to do that without me losing my place and be able to do this in multiple states is extremely encouraging. I wonder very much, though, what this multiple save state, multiple quick resume state will mean if things are suspended, if we are able to access xCloud from those suspended states. Will I be able to play Darksiders Genesis suspended on my Xbox and then pick it back up later on with xCloud down the line? That's the promise of what Google Stadia uh, offered when people initially saw it. That's what everybody thought they would be getting. Might Xbox have a way into this? Will there be a way to do this going forward because of this multiple game state suspension? Uh, I, I hope so. I very much am excited to see what will happen with it. But to me, Quick Resume was a wonderful feature that I saw included in there. And it speaks to me as a gamer and somebody who's not overly technically inclined. I just like that I get to get into my game faster, uh, reduce the amount of loading screens and the loading times because I just want to play. And, and something that else that they included in there was SSD storage, the idea that they would have solid state drives available to us in every system right away. Game worlds can be larger, they can be more dynamic, things will load a lot faster, fast travel will be fast. Now here's what's interesting to me and something I wonder. A lot of times when you see fast loading uh, improvements from one generation to the next, from one system to the next, one set of hardware to the next, they will take older games and load them quickly. Well, older games have less information that, that are to be processed for the same reason that we might have to download 4K patches on 1080p games. When you upgrade it, you have more information, more data to process. Will those fast states still be as fast going forward? Solid state drives certainly do a great job improving that and will absolutely be uh, impressive. I'm curious how much more impressive towards the mid-cycle of the Series X, towards the late generation. That's just a, a curiosity factor for me. I've been dealing with and working with loading loading screens since goodness the ps1 era and it won't be a shock to have them again if we do have that but i'm curious at just what these multiple suspension games the solid state drives what will it do to the larger the halo infinite 2 the the, the bigger games that come out five six years from now something to watch something to be curious about and on the the very mild entertainment tech side that'll be kind of neat to see where it goes with that i'm I'm, I'm pleased. But what I am most pleased about in this, as I said, deluge of announcements, so much information being thrown at us uh, in this blog post of all things, is something called Smart Delivery. Smart Delivery is the feature by way any first party title that you purchase, whatever device you purchase it on, it will be upgraded to the best of the best at whatever device you have at the time. You purchase the Xbox One version of a Halo Infinite, you automatically have the Xbox Series X version of Halo Infinite. This is somewhat different than the forward compatibility we knew would be coming with the next generation, in that it was understood that if you bought the Xbox One version of the Xbox Series, uh, of Halo Infinite rather, it would work on the Xbox Series X. That's well and good, but now with smart delivery, Xbox is making a promise that all their first party titles, if they get an upgrade and enhanced for X and enhanced for Series X, whatever it is, you get that upgrade for free. 
that's certainly to be understandable. It makes perfect business sense if their method of delivery on games is to be Game Pass and not necessarily purchasing the game outright, then they're not really losing anything by it. They're only generating and bringing in good consumer will. That's all well and good, something that was not expected but makes perfect sense and it's not at all surprising. What was surprising, though, is that with the announcement of smart delivery, with the announcement of upgradable versions of games that they would do for free on the Microsoft side, CD Projekt Red announced that Cyberpunk would be taking use of this feature as well. Meaning that if you buy Cyberpunk on an Xbox One, and then you purchase a Series X down the line whenever that comes into your, your family for whatever reason, you're going to get the Series X version of Cyberpunk. Now this generates a number of questions and encouraging factors for gamers of all types. For CD Projekt Red to, to lay down the gauntlet like that, they're a major developer. Cyberpunk is one of the top three most important games going into this next generation. Uh, I strongly feel that they are setting a precedent here. It reminds me very much of when The Witcher 3 came out. Witcher 3 included 17, I believe, DLCs for free that were available to gamers in varying size and breadth of importance to the story. Not only that, but they also included a note in the physical copy saying, hey, thank you for buying our game. CD Projekt Red, a brand and a, a studio and a publisher known to, hey, make goodwill with, with its consumers, with, it, with its customer base. And in doing this statement, in stating outright that they are going to upgrade everybody's version via smart delivery, they're saying that no one should have to buy two versions of a game to play it on the latest hardware. They are throwing down a gauntlet to other publishers, to other developers saying, hey, do the same, lest the articles be written that you are not willing to upgrade your customers. What does this do for the next Call of Duty? You buy Call of Duty Ghosts 2 or Modern Warfare 2 or whatever the next Call of Duty is. You buy it on your Xbox One. What does that mean when you get a Series X? Will Activision also follow that smart delivery plane? Xbox stated in this same uh, post that developers and publishers uh, have access to this technology. It's made available to them should they choose to take advantage of it. Man, that's a lot of goodwill. That's a lot of surprising goodwill, and it really throws the onus on the developers and publishers to do right by the customer, lest the article on IGN, Kotaku, Polygon be that they are not willing to do that, that they are willing to double charge their consumer base, their customer base. What type of mind share will that have for somebody if they buy Call of Duty on Xbox One and Activision says, no, you have to buy outright again the next Call of Duty? What does that mean for them? Can Activision survive that? Probably. But what about a mid-tier developer? What about a mid-tier publisher? Could they survive that? I don't know that they could in this world of subscription services, in a world of Game Pass, in a world of smart delivery being taken advantage of by a first-party major set of studios uh, like Microsoft. It is encouraging. I love the technology. I love the idea behind it. I also love what it's going to do to Sony because they are going to have to respond in some way shape or form if they don't offer something similar over on the playstation 5 and playstation 4 devices they're going to have to at the very least acknowledge that it exists and they will be asked by journalists what they're doing why they're not doing it what they're supporting what they're not and all of that competition means good things for gamers and this this is exciting for me because i don't know if i'll buy a playstation 5 outright at launch i don't even know if i'll buy a series x at launch given pricing and what we're not sure about but if i buy a game the idea that it travels forward with me is fantastic. The idea that it upgrades for me with smart delivery, that's even more fantastic and more enticing and makes me more likely to think about buying a game earlier or upgrading later, upgrading sooner. There's a lot of factors and questions that come into my mind as a consumer base. 
Phil Spencer in this article also highlighted backward compatibility, the idea that existing Xbox One games or games that work on Xbox One will work on Series X, meaning if it's an OG Xbox game, an Xbox 360 game that has been made backward compatible by the emulation software they provided, that it's going to work again on the Series X. I wonder very much if the backward compatibility program will continue to be expanded. We know that team took time off. Uh, roughly at the end of 2017, I believe, in order to focus their efforts on the next generation of Xboxes. What does that mean for those games that didn't ever get made backward compatible? Will we see them come through? Will they make their way to the Series X? How do they navigate licensing agreements and legalities that might come with that? Either way, we know that the, the entire slew of current backward compatible games are making their way forward. That's encouraging. I want to keep seeing that. I hope that program continues to expand. There are a few arcade titles I never got my hands on and a few things in the backlog I never made my way to. And the idea that I don't have an Xbox 360 any longer or an OG Xbox in my house. I don't get to play them, and I would like to have access to it. So again, all quality of life, small things that are included. What this did from the very, very onset, when Spencer published a post on Xbox Wire stating outright to the world what is going to be included in the Xbox Series X, there were you have to imagine that every single word was meticulously chosen in order to speak to a number of different audiences. The idea of 12 teraflops to those who don't truly understand technology like myself, that I understand what they mean by 12 teraflops versus 9 teraflops. The number's bigger, I get the GPU processing performances, I understand that aspect, But because teraflops are kind of a made-up term if you look into it, which is interesting. But to the more detail-oriented, each one of those specs and inclusions of details now, into that article was there for a purpose so that people could break it down, so that speculation pieces, idea and concept pieces would make their way to the forefront of discussions on each level uh, of chat about these, about the Series X, about next generation, about Xbox. Smart. I like it. I like that we have information. Very curious to see where we will hear about this information because in the next bit of news, GDC has been officially postponed and delayed to this summer. Now, we discussed last week that PAX had a number of people withdraw. PAX still went on in this past weekend. At the time of this recording, I believe it's in day three uh, and winding down. A lot of major publishers not at PAX this year, but it seems to be that the con the conference went very well. I know Mr. Babbitt and several of my friends are there reporting on it. The Iron Lord is doing great work over there. It's great to see that, but GDC, with so many people backing out, have decided to no longer have their their conference at the time at which it was scheduled and is officially delayed to, this, to summer. Now, among the people that backed out prior to their postponement, Sony, Facebook, Oculus, Microsoft, Epic, Amazon, Blizzard, Kojima Productions, Gearbox, Iron Galaxy Studios, Unity also included in it, and a number of smaller ones, makes perfect sense for them to step away, say, hey, we're not going to have this conference now, we'll do it later, because at what point is it a financial loss or a medical and legal risk to have GDC amidst the coronavirus concerns if somehow, some way, a coronavirus outbreak is traced back to GDC, the legalities and the potential fallout of that are, are devastating on a business side, not to mention the far more realistic and far more important medical and, and life-threatening side of it. So it makes sense to postpone GDC to this summer, but you have to wonder if GDC will even happen this year. Moreover, will E3 happen this year? If all of those conferences are to be canceled due to medical concerns or anything, anything kind of in that realm, it is understandable, it is 
disheartening and it is heartening all at once. A lot of mixed emotions for me come out of that. I certainly don't want anyone threatened by way of congregating all together and then potentially spreading a disease and making people sick in a world of gaming that is meant to be such a celebratory place of fun and enjoyment. Uh, secondly, and on an encouraging side, we exist now in a world where you can have high fidelity streams that showcase all different types of, of games and visual aesthetics, meaning that if E3 is canceled, if GDC truly goes away, the idea of directs being hosted by Xbox, by Sony, by uh, Nintendo that are directly featuring and spotlighting different games might be able to deliver a more concise message to consumers. Now, there is something special about being in the room, feeling the energy, feeling the vibe, and I will never discount that. But there is also something to be said for getting a clear and concise message about a particular game if they are done well. It's kind of like the difference between being at the football game on the 50-yard line watching stuff from that angle versus being up in the booth or on TV where you get a better angle of everything, but you don't necessarily feel the, the excitement that might come with each and every announcement or event or uh, what, what's going on at, at whatever event you're at. So I do understand the benefits and the drawbacks therein. If E3 is canceled, I fully expect Microsoft to go on the offensive with their announcements on the business side, with the announcements of having a direct and showcasing different games. I would expect and hope that they have multiple directs that spotlight each thing. This one for the Xbox Series X. This one for the Xbox Series X games that are coming out this holiday. This for the ID at Xbox games and the developers that might have been showcased at GDC, might have been spotlighted at GDC, at E3, that you would have missed otherwise. I can tell you from firsthand experience in being at FanFest, I would not have been excited, as excited for the LEGO Forza announcement, for Darksiders Genesis, for playing, um, what was it, the Tunic game. Playing Tunic was incredible. There's an incredible game I talked about last week called Cyber... Uh, Cyber Shadow. I, if I had not touched and gone hands-on with them at FanFest, I wouldn't have been as excited about those things herein. If conferences are canceled, if events are canceled, postponed, delayed, what have you, that's certainly going to have a business impact. However, I fully hope and expect Microsoft to spotlight those games that we might have otherwise missed out on. And, and in saying that, I also expect Sony to do the same, Nintendo to do the same, and the onus will be on Amazon, Blizzard, Kojima Productions, Gearbox to do something similar for their products, work with each of those major publishers and developers to continue spotlighting and bringing their games to consumers. The real loss in all of this comes from those who might have invested all of their money and time into spotlighting their game at a GDC, and they don't have the financial stability to recover from it. And here's hoping we see goodwill from kind of the, the heavier hitters, the, the first party players to say, hey, we know you lost out on this opportunity. We're going to work with you. We're going to help you out. That's my, my biggest hope that we get a goodwill story coming out of this, because when it's something like a coronavirus, like a medical concern, there's a, it's almost a no-win scenario from a business side because the difficulty in navigating messaging, good or bad, no matter what could happen, is going to be so frustrating for a publisher developer that you can't win. You just can't win. So here's hoping things get rectified and we continue to get good news out of that potentially bad news situation. Moving in now to some of the lighter topics on the gaming side, we've got a new dashboard update this past week. Now, insiders had been or had access to this dashboard update for some time now, but the standard Xbox users like myself booted up on Friday, saw a brand new dashboard available to them. Uh, certainly seems streamlined in a number of ways. 
And Famous Seamus wrote into the show tweeting me at InsipidGhost, and he says, How do you feel about the new dashboard? Seamus, it is always good to hear from you, man. A pure pleasure to see you on my timeline. Uh, and the truth is, man, I absolutely love the new dashboard. I think they've done a good job at improving its speed, making it far far more snappy from screen to screen. One of the things that I had noticed about the old dashboard that I found rather obnoxious was how intrusive the ads could be for any potential new content that are available. And I would often be paralyzed by the number of decisions I had to make on screen. It was almost like information overload. This new dashboard seems to reduce a lot of the things I'm being bombarded with on each boot up. And in going back to the screen, because it's much faster, it is quickly adaptable and I'm easy, I have a far more easy time learning and navigating it from start to finish. I can access my most recently played games. It's easy to get to the store, easy to get to Game Pass. And because if I go to my library, which is something like 500 games deep with the, the backward compatibility and the subscription services, it doesn't load them all primarily right away, meaning I can keep just what I have installed or I can go to my available library if I want to download something. Because there's not loading of so much information at one time, I don't feel bombarded by it. I think this is a preparatory update that's leading us towards the Xbox Series X dashboard. Moreover, I would imagine that there's a lot of similarities and parallels between the Xbox One family of devices dashboard and the Series X dashboard. Moreover, I think xCloud will be factored into that as well. They are trying to get something akin to what Apple has across its family of devices in that if you know how to use iOS on your iPad or your phone, you know how to use it in the, in on, on a Mac OS system anywhere similar to that of Android or the like. So learning an OS anywhere, learning a dashboard anywhere is going to be a good thing. They need to continue to make it streamlined and parallel and work on mobile devices for, for xCloud purposes, on the Xbox One systems, on the Series X systems, on the PC side of things. It all needs to speak the same language so it doesn't matter to what device I'm accessing. I know that I'm working with and playing Xbox. Amidst all the Series X news and the dashboard update and what it could potentially mean for the next generation, a lot of speculation came out with people wondering just how much these consoles are going to cost. And in last week's episode, we discussed those costs and the very, how much we'd be willing to pay here and there. And so it made sense to put out a poll on Twitter. And you can participate in these polls on my Twitter, at InsipidGhost, uh, over in that there social media space. And in this particular poll, I asked people, what is the maximum you are willing to pay for a next-generation console? I was not specific to PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X because I don't think it serves the question. But what's the maximum people are willing to pay? 6.9% of the people surveyed said that they at the very most they would pay only $400 for a next-generation console, which seems to me to be on the cheaper side of things given what we know about these next-generation systems. 55.2% said the maximum they were willing to pay was $499. A $500 system was the max they were willing to go. That was 55.2% of people saying that that was it. They would not go above it no matter how powerful it was. Surprising in some ways, not at all in others. And lastly, at $600, 37.9% of users surveyed said that they would pay up to $600 for the next generation console regardless. And a few people wrote in with their thoughts and I wanted to include them. The first came from Ryan Whitehead of Easy Encore. He said, if you can explain and justify the value to me, I am willing to spend the right amount of money, especially when I'm also given financing options. 
Now, Ryan is alluding to the idea that for next generation consoles, there are financing options. And in certain programs, you can put yourself on a payment plan. You can put yourself on uh, maybe snagging an Xbox One X right now and then over time paying it off. And then when it's available, upgrading to the Xbox Series X. Microsoft has rolled out these various programs in smaller markets and to a lesser known availability. I think they're piloting different programs and trying to make people aware. If it's available on a mass consumer level, I certainly don't know about it being available on a mass level. And that speaks again to messaging. But Ryan makes a good point. Microsoft will indeed have to justify the value of what it is they're offering, regardless of cost, whether it's $400, $500, or $600 respectively, whether there are two systems, just one system at launch, who knows? But Ryan makes a good point. They're gonna have to justify to their users what the value to dollar is, and he says that he's willing to spend the right amount of money if that value is there. Now this is similar to what Donnie from PSVG wrote in on Twitter, and he said, if it's worth it, the money nets more value in performance than cost. I'll gladly pay $5.99 up front to ensure that I'm good for many years down the line. Now, gotta say, I understand where both of them are coming from. Nonetheless, $600 is an expensive system. Regardless, if I'm having so many great experiences on my One X, why upgrade at $600? The Switch certainly taught us that you don't need to spend uh, a massive amount of money to have great gaming experiences but Donnie and Ryan both say that that it comes down to the value to dollar with Donnie's point saying if, if he pays a lot of money up front right away he better be good for a few years uh, of quality gaming uh, within that realm and it certainly makes sense to me I understand that I don't want a mid-generation upgrade one two years out that I have to pay another $500 for. So paying 600 bucks does make sense. Now I will tell you this, it is my opinion that for all the tech they put into this thing and as beast mode as it looks, I do not think it is a smart move to pay more than $500 for this next gen console, to charge $500 for the, uh, more than $500 for this next gen console. To me that feels like a misstep regardless of the power. If Microsoft felt the need to put in so much power moving into this next generation, that's fine, that's dandy, that was a, a business decision they made, uh, analyzing far more variables than I am perhaps comfortable even, even going into. But on the consumer side of things, I can't imagine a lot of traction being made for the Xbox brand if that Series X costs more than $500. They set a standard in the last generation, regardless of inflation rates and, and currency adjustments, they set a standard that $500 didn't get people what they wanted at the time. The Xbox One X has been on the market for a good amount of time. It is the most powerful box out there. Still, even with all the wonderful programs available, it seems like a hard sell at 500. It does seem to sell well when it's on sale. I don't know what you'll do with a, a $600 system right off the bat. Is it worth it to everybody? How many people that are buying a, a system brand new at launch have the capability of watching on a 4K TV, have the capability of taking advantage of all of those different programs? And when it's been very clearly stated by Microsoft that you don't need to upgrade to, ha to play their latest games for the first year, will people dive in right away because the narrative gets written very early on in a generation's life cycle even if you recover your brand much the way microsoft did this time around if every article is that playstation 5 is selling 2 million out the gate and xbox series x you know 0.5 million or 1 million that will be the narrative that's written and the mindshare uninformed ignorant or, or uninterested regardless will begin to write a narrative that microsoft doesn't want to happen so pricing will be huge here for my money, $500 makes sense. $500 is a good round number that just says, all right, this is what it's got. Anything less than that seems 
almost impossible given what we know about what's going into it with its GPU and whatnot. But, uh, but here, here's hoping that it's reasonable and well communicated to the consumer. The next question came in from Hypecaster. Hypecaster, of course, writing in, PlayStation 5 is going to have a new DualShock. Xbox already has said that you can use past controllers with the Series X. Do they release a new or updated controller with the gimmick features uh, for the Xbox Series X or pack in an Elite into every box or a standard controller and why? Well, Hypecaster, it's an interesting question because we do know that the, the DualShock 5 is going to have a, a few new features to go with it. I'm sure they'll factor in battery life to be a, a part of all of these conversations regardless of system. The idea that haptic feedback might be what's coming to the DualShock 5, uh, I believe is what you are alluding to. As far as what they pack in with the Xbox Series X, we know that all the new controllers are going to have a share button, something that I will believe will be crucial in writing the narrative for next gen. The ability to share and have it be tagged Xbox Series X right out the gate or Xbox Share right out the gate without having to do any extra steps, extra button presses, without making it obtuse to a consumer uh, is smart. So I, that are, right away is the biggest change in the controller that's available. Uh, I do not think in any way, shape, or form they pack an Elite into any of these bundles uh, that are straight from Microsoft. Now, Best Buy might do it, Amazon might do it, here, there, or the other, but I think it would be ludicrous to pack a $180 controller into an already brand new system. I don't see that happening at all. Uh, as far as gimmicks, again, I, I don't know what you mean by gimmick per se. We know that it's going to have the share button. I know We know that they're going to improve triggers here and there. And if your stuff is working from your Xbox One device on your Series X, uh, I don't think you need to upgrade and get that second controller here, there, or the other. Because when you're buying the Series X, you're going to have a controller included. Do you need multiple Series X versions? Uh, I don't know that you do. Or I think if you do, uh, you can space out your purchasing so you don't eat all those costs right up front. Uh, but yeah, packing in an Elite, not at all happening. They'll have what, what they consider to be a standard controller. It'll be the Series X version, and they'll phase out the ones and, and so on. But I love this idea of forward compatibility with devices, so I don't have to go in and buy all that stuff right away. iDizzy writes in, as he does every week, trying to trip me up and throw me off. He wants to know which Annihilation movie was worse, Mortal Kombat 1997 or the Doom Annihilation 2019? Uh, this is a very easy question. If you've not seen Doom Annihilation, it's available to you on Netflix. And if you have ever, or you've never seen Mortal Kombat Annihilation, all you need to do is go to the bathroom, not flush, and you'll see the same thing. Uh, the the worst Annihilation movie was Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Not only was it bad, it was really bad. It was exceptionally bad. Whereas if you go watch Doom Annihilation, it's like you're watching a bad movie that's kind of fun because you see Easter eggs and the like. Uh, so the worst Annihilation movie, of course, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. It was atrocious and terrible, particularly given just how good Mortal Kombat was for its time. Man, I miss that movie. I love watching that movie. And it is cheesy to, to the nth degree. But those were $500 sunglasses. Well, what else are you going to do? Our last question of this week comes from Edward Varnell at RetroCode, who, by the way, I believe went to PAX. I hope you're having fun there, man. It looks like you were. And uh, bravo to you. Edward writes in and says, Do you think any Microsoft Studios could make a Japanese-style game without having outside help, and what studio could do it? Not saying they make anything like Ghost of Tsushima or Yakuza. This is a question that the truth is I don't know how to answer, uh, Edward, and you're very good at doing that. You, you give me some thinkers, and, and you stumble me up every week in the best ways possible, so please continue to do that. Uh, and I'll ask the audience the same question. Are there any 
are, are there any studios in Microsoft's catalog or any studios that Microsoft could hire that are not from Japan that could make a Japanese-style game? Uh, he did not explicitly state whether it needed to be a JRPG or an action game or anything of that nature. Uh, to, to put it very simply, Edward, yes, there absolutely could be someone somewhere that, that recognizes and identifies uh, what you might call a Japanese game. But whether you mean that in aesthetic or in game design uh, or in narrative, I don't know specifically what it is. But I know there are people that could do it. I couldn't tell you who could do it. I don't have that knowledge base, nor do I, nor do I quite know the ramifications or the level of impact that you might have culturally in trying to speak to an entire culture without having ever been a part of it or being a part of it. Uh, I just don't have the answer or the wisdom for that. I'm sure it's been done. I'm sure it can be done. I have no doubt about it. But I'm, I'm, I am curious about that. Because what do, I what do I think a Japanese game means? When you say Japanese game to me, when somebody, a gamer, brings that up to me, uh, I have a couple thoughts go through my mind. I think about JRPGs and, and anime manga style art. Uh, I think a lot of visual novels. I think a lot of just JRPG game design levels and aesthetics. And then I also think about something like Yakuza or Sleeping Dogs. And whether or not you those are actually JRPGs or my own biases that I'm aware of or not aware of, I don't know. So I ask you all listeners, write in and tell me what you think of Edward, Edward's code, uh, Edward's code, Edward's question. Uh, tweet me at InsipidGhost and let me know what you think. Is there a studio that you think could make a, quote, Japanese-style game uh, without having been a studio from it? It's, a, it's an interesting question with a lot of levels and layers to it. Uh, man, great question, uh, Eddie, Eddie, and I have no clue. Uh, what the actual answer is. But those are the best types of question, man, the speculatory ones uh, that make us think on all levels. Now, my most favorite people, I appreciate you listening to this show each and every week. It brings me great joy to record it. It brings me great joy to uh, share and, and discuss and dialogue with you guys, whether it be on Mixer or on Twitter. Uh, so please thank you so much. Please know, rather, that I appreciate each and every one of you. Feel free to tweet at me, to, to email me, insipidghost at gmail.com. If you're able and willing to write a review on the old iTunes or whatever your podcast services of choice, uh, that certainly does help me continue to, to find motivation and enjoyment from the show. Uh, bottom line, I hope you have a wonderful gaming week, and I hope to hear you and see you again next week. Take care, guys.